You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! Welcome to a new episode of Delirious Nomads, brought to you by Blacklight Media Records, a weekly podcast hosted by yours truly, celebrity chef Chris Santos, I hate calling myself that, and underground metal connoisseur Matt Bacon, who loves being called that. This is your new favorite podcast for all things heavy metal, as well as breakdowns of your favorite combat sports and riffing on some food talk every week with very special guests from across the globe. Hello and welcome to the Delirious Nomads podcast, the Blacklight Media podcast, uh, where we talk to music industry people try to talk about what's going on with our label, talking about what's going on with other labels and artists we really dig. Today we have a very good friend of mine, a industry luminary who's been doing this for a long time with a lot of success and a storied career. The one and only Mike Gitter. How are you, Mike? Hey, Matt. Thank you for having me. And luminary, I'm not quite sure, but I'll take it. Luminary to me. Luminous. Sure. I mean, you with your with your screen, you are and your glare, you're quite luminous today. So thank you. There you go. All this to say, I want to start from the top. You know, you've kind of built this career as an AR guy working with Phil Switch Engage and the Roadrunner stuff in the 90s, you know, eventually transitioning to Century Media where you are today, uh, working on a whole bunch of cool projects across a wide tranche of the heavy music genres, right? But what were you like as a kid? What was I like as a kid? You know, before I even get into that, what I'll what I'll say is, I think there's kind of an overarching, you know, idea or ideal um, that I think I've always had, which is one of putting your hands putting your hands on the wheel. You know, really taking agency agency for your own you know for your own life and kind of turning your passions, you know, into you know, a vocation, but also also a lifestyle, also a drive, and also also the thing that you know gets you up every day and keeps keeps you focused and keeps you creative and keeps you energized about life. Uh, I mean, for 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 me, you know, I grew I grew up um, in a town called Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is about thir- which is about thirty minutes north of Boston. Um, and, you know, like, like many other kids, you know, being a little bit anxious, um, having a little anxiety, a little bit of, you know, not, you know, not feeling like one fit in looking for sort of some, some sort of tribe and some sort of culture that you can call your own. And luckily, you know, I was able to find that in punk rock and the early Boston hardcore scene. And really finding this world of, you know, entrepreneurial, you know, like fellow, you know, fellow like unconscious, unconscious entrepreneurs, you know, who were um, really 
cult, you know, building their own culture, putting out, you know, putting out their own records, putting on their own gigs, literally, you know, taking agency of their own lives and seeing people like the guys in SSD control or, you know, yeah. their friends from Washington, D.C., minor threat. People who, who were not satisfied with what they got handed and then creating the world that they wanted to see. And for me, that was absolutely instrumental. Like that was that that yeah. was a, a jumping off point from, like I said, the insecurity, anxiety, self-doubt to like, you know, some means of empowerment. Absolutely. And so you start out your booking hardcore shows in the Boston area. No. What did you do before that? Actually, before that, like with most people who sort of who became involved in that scene in the early 80s, the beauty of it is everybody kind of got a job, right? You were you were either in a band, you were putting out records, you were putting on shows, you were printing the merch, uh, you were taking photos, or you were putting out a fanzine, which really, you know, fanzines were the social media of the day. Yeah. I really wasn't, didn't have a, like a real musical aptitude, but I, I certainly had an aptitude for communication. And also to me, you know, as much as, as, as much as, as, as the music itself was, you know, absolutely galvanizing, so were a lot of the things that came along with it. And like, I came out, I came out of what I would call like a second gener a second generation of hardcore. Uh, by that sure. point, you know, bands had, bands, you know, some of the, the, the classic records had, had been released, you know, Dead Kennedys had put out fresh fruit frying vegetables, our, our, you know, our local flag waivers, SSD control had put out the kids will have their say. Black Flag had put out damaged. The bands were touring, be it clubs or art galleries or VFW halls. Shows were starting to happen. And there was also this, this steady diet of fanzines that would inform us of what was going on, be it, you know, on the West Coast, be it in Washington, D.C., be it in Europe. Just as hungrily as, as I was consuming records, you know, I would also be getting my hands on things like Boston's Forced Exposure or Maximum Rock and Roll or Flipside. And that, along with having people around me like um, Al Quint, who is a, is, is a you know, long running, you know, personality in the Boston scene, um, who, did, who did a zine called Suburban Punk, which later became Suburban Voice. Yeah. Al was like literally a guy from one town, another Jewish kid from one town over who was able to give himself a voice. And inspired by all that, in 1983, I, st I started a fanzine called Triple X. that was actually based, based on a, a, like a zine I had started uh, a year before called uh, Suburban Mucus. And, you know, I, I did that for about, for about six years. Um, there's there's a there's a there's a collected works uh, that came out through Bridge Nine in book form called Triple X Fanzine. I think I've seen that. 1983 to 1988. It's a five pound tome of a book. So you know while while I was sort of really learning to, learning to be an effective writer, and you know doing interviews with bands, writing live reviews, writing record reviews, I also realize that, you know, I could have just as much fun and increase my voice writing for other magazines. I had first started writing for local magazines like Boston Rock, 
which was like a, fr- a free newspaper-sized periodical. Of that plus, you know, whatever notoriety I was getting from Triple X resulted in me getting invites from people like Pusshead, who is the music editor at Thrasher, to write for Thrasher, which is, has been some of my, you know, some of the stuff I wrote for them in the mid to late 80s and early 90s is stuff that, you know, you know is, is constantly some of my, my more enduring, quote unquote, work. You know, like I, I had done initial interviews with people like everything, everything from Verbal Assault and Scream to Zodiac Mind Warp and Guns and Roses and The Cult. And what was also happening is along this point, I, I also was, was getting contacted by a number of different magazines to write for them. Um, you know, for instance, one of the first calls I got was from a guy named Danny Fields, uh, who was editing a, mag- a magazine called Hard Rock Video. And yeah. Hard Rock Hard Rock Video was it was it was interesting because it was it was it was a mid '80s kind of like the better known rock scene magazine uh, that came out of New York, masquerading as like an MTV generation glossy mag. And Danny Fields had asked me to write a story about Black Flag, a band I was you know an enormous fan of because he had seen a piece I had written written that made the cover of Boston Rock. Now you know interestingly enough, I figure out about a month later. Oh shit! That was the Dan- that was the Danny Fields who, you know, who who not only was the manager of the Ramones early on, but also signed whatever that me- means the MC5 and the Stooges to Elektra Records. Yeah. And suddenly I realized, like, oh wait a second, what is that, and how does that how does that work? And great. Along this along this road, as as a as a as a you know self publisher and as a journalist, I, I developed this fascination with who are these mysterious you know who are these sort of mysterious personalities behind the curtain, you know who are these guys who are sort of like you know we would we would come to call it curating later on, but who are these guys who are like finding the bands you know making making the difference in that way and cut to the late 80s, early 90s, what we're starting to see happen is a lot of these bands I had covered either as a, as a, as a um, in my fanzine or as a journalist, were starting to extend into mainstream culture, you know, basically the mainstream. Um, and these are, these are, you know, bands like Helmet, the Rollins Band, bands like the Cro-Mags. Then there was this band whose drummer I knew because a band that I had been playing in Yes, I actually tried that out too. Um, played a lot with his band, which was called Scream. And the drummer was a guy named Dave Grohl. And, you know, so when when Dave went and joined Nirvana, you know, it, in, in my mind, it was like, oh, cool. You know, that's that's Dave's band. Like, like Nirvana's Dave's new band, you know. And, you know, liter- literally in, 19, in September of 1991, Dave's new band, released a record called Nevermind, which fundamentally changed, you know, which fundamentally changed the culture and imparted sure. change in the culture. All of a sudden, record labels who at that point, you know, had a lot more money, money to throw around and had a lot more, you know, profit coming from. We were living in a world where records were being sold and catalogs were being converted over to CD. So there was, there was a lot, you know, there was like, like labels were a bigger force at that point. Yeah, money was being printed. Basically, money was being printed off of music. And they they also started looking for people who had been involved in this sort of elusive underground. 
that you know I had been I had been a part of, and I had also I had also documented as a journalist. Now, what what led to you know what led to my ascension onto the label side was I was on a flight coming from Los Angeles to New York, where I was living at the time, and I bumped into a guy named Jason Flom. Jason, you know, who is who is still a absolutely legendary, you know, yeah, our man, legendary figure in the music business. I knew him vaguely from from seeing him at shows, just a, just a figure as a personality I knew from shows. I also knew his fiance at the time because she worked at Profile, which is where a label called Rock Hotel, you know, was based, and. That was the label that the Cro-Mags and Leeway and Murphy's Law and DOA and Discharge were signed to. So I was yes. coming in there a lot to interview artists. And like I said, I had friends of mine who were signed to the label. So, you know, Jason, I, I bumped into Jason. Jason and I struck up a conversation. He started asking me about, you know, what am I excited about? What am I listening to? What bands do I think are making a difference? And about three days later, I got a call from him asking if I wanted to consult for Atlantic Records. That turned into me going, huh, what does that mean? You mean I'll actually get a paycheck for my, you know, for my opinions? And th- th- this could actually translate into some of these bands I've been championing, getting a, getting a shot at something bigger? Okay. And I, I was there as a consultant for, you know, a few, for a few months. I was lucky enough to have a, uh, to have been at least two A&R meetings with Amit Erdogan, the man That's who cool. basically just, who, who discovered and signed rock and roll yeah. himself. We'll just call him, you know, he discovered rock and roll. Yeah. And he brought it to the world. And did a, did a lot more than that, which I feel like people don't even grasp. That's three podcasts just to scratch the surface. L- literally the most excited I've ever been to talk to Steve Davis, who, for those who don't know, I manages Cannibal Corpse and a bunch of other bands and who I've worked with for a while, was when he casually dropped that he knew Ahmed Ertigan. I had like a meltdown. Oh, yeah. Because like, like there's no one else I care about. Like that's who you want to be, right? Absolutely. And and interestingly enough, interesting enough, you know, I get a few months later, I find myself on a flight with Danny Goldberg, who was the, I believe, the president of Atlantic at the time. We were going to the UK to go court Godflesh. There's so many layers to that story. Yeah, and and if you think about it, you're like, huh? But at that point, you know, I think the business was the business was looking at a band like that going, oh, well, Nine Inch Nails are doing great. You know, you've got this could be the next Nine Inch Nails. No, it was really the next Godflesh. And that's probably, you know, been to their been to their advantage to this day. But it ended up being a situation where where I was in those offices, you know, enough where they simply said, go down the hall and take this office. And it's obvious we can't get rid of you. So you're in that began five years over over atlantic and you know actually you know and, and this this just shows you how what well, a small world it could be sometime but like that's where i met people like steve davis who i work with now you know who manages lorna shore who manages Queensryche, uh both of which are assigned to century media who, both of whom were assigned to century media so that's you know that's kind of how it evolved into a label gig yeah it's funny because it's so because uh, you're like 25 when this happens, basically. Yeah, <laughs> I, I guess I was. It's it's just it's funny because it's so like weirdly indicative of what that time is, right? Where it's like 
not just that you are flying to England to sign Godflesh, but you're flying to England with the president of Atlantic Records to sign Godflesh. Who at one point was the manager of Nirvana, Sonic Youth, and the Beastie Boys. Yeah. So I want to talk about this for a second because it's such an interesting yeah. thing to me. You would appreciate. I, I read the entirety of that book, This Band Could Be Your Life, on a flight once. Mm-hmm. I was flying to Germany and I showed up at Dana Swan's apartment and gave her her, her uh, lap steel. And I was so tired. And I remember lying on her floor, trying not to fall asleep, asking questions about the 80s hardcore scene. Right. So my weird question for you is like, were you at that International Day of Punk in Olympia where Ian McKay did the door for like a few hours? No, I wasn't. I wasn't there. But more than that, I guess what I'm saying is like, what was it like to be part of a, a scene like that where you were just like some guy who booked hardcore shows and had zines? Suddenly people taking your opinion, not just people taking your opinion seriously as a 25 year old, but people taking mm-hmm. People at major, major labels taking your opinion seriously, turning and you seeing people who like you saw play to 20 people five years previously become rock stars. What was that like? I mean, if, if, if nothing else, it was gratifying. You know, for, for instance, the first the first band I ever signed was a band called, from Washington, D.C. called Jawbox. Yeah. And the roots of that relationship came out of knowing the band's, you know, singer, guitar player and songwriter, who's a guy named Jay Robbins, who I met when he was in a band called Government Issue. Classic hardcore band. Classic hardcore band, right. He was he was the he was the last bass player in that band. And if you go back, you know, you're you're talking about probably a good seven, eight years, seven, eight years of 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 development between that early 80s hardcore scene and then, you know, the comet that was called Nevermind crashing down on Earth. You had you had people who were able who were real personalities. Think about like some of the legendary New York hardcore characters, right? People like, you know, Harley Flanagan or Jimmy Gestapo or John Joseph or Vinnie Stigma or Roger from AF. These are freaking superheroes, you know? Sure. These are these are the outsized personalities that, you know, were destined for something. And then punk rock and hardcore gave them the vehicle. You know, seeing that growth in the indie sector, but also breaking through to the mainstream was enormously gratifying. You know, again, um, the Beastie Boys, you know, like a band that was sort of a just okay New York hardcore band, finally figuring out what, what they really were great at and then changing the world. Personalities like Ian McKay, um, who not only changed the mainstream, but challenged the mainstream in Fugazi, you know, or someone like like Henry Rollins, who, you know, went from went from being a a a guy letting it loose into a microphone, you know, to being a cultural commentator, and you know, sort of like go to archivist and talking head. Sure. You know, I, I think I think seeing anyone who sort of put the time in the trenches, um, have have some degree of success has been enormously you know gratifying, and then. Obviously, in the case of, of Jawbox, you know, being being the per, you know being a person involved in their growth and you know the the success that they had as a band, you know, on whatever on whatever level really was you know com- completely defining for me. I mean, the second band I signed was a, was a little band called Bad Religion. No big deal. Kind of a little known Southern California band, and seeing 
you know, they're seeing seeing their growth from well, not one of the go-to names of the day in the early '80s to being like the band that re-sparked and, and redefined punk, you know, in the underground and ultimately in the mainstream, and then and then being a part of being a part of their career at a time, you know, when they did have, you know, they, they did go on to have gold records and did go on to play to thousands, you know, thousands of people all over the world. That was completely, you know, an early high point in my life. Absolutely. I'm always trying to explain this to my girlfriend when she comes to see a band I signed or a band that I work with on some capacity. And just that sense of like, you go to the sold out show, no matter how big the club is, but you go to the sold out show and you're like, oh, I helped make this happen. Like, it's like a magic feeling. It's enlivening and humbling in the same breath. Exactly. Ultimately, it's down to the artist. It's down to the music. Of course. It's down to what they create. That's one little hook you can hang one hat on. You're never, you know, I think in what we do, the moment you think you're the guy, right? You've completely lost the plot. Absolutely. For me, maybe it's a sense of like forced humility. You know, you get a lot from the daily push, you know, to create and connect and accomplish. And I think it's, I think that's probably the key to a lot of what I do and probably a lot of the longevity I've, I've had, you know, I mean, for instance, you know, I've, I've worked for labels now for 30, for 30 years as of this year, Wow, which is a pretty substantial run. I've maybe had a record or two that went, that limped to platinum. I've had a bunch of things, you know, that a bunch of things that, that, you know, were quote unquote gold records, a few things that sold several hundred thousand records. You know, most importantly, I think a lot of the record, you know, a lot of the records I've worked on over the years, and it's probably well, you know, well over a hundred records. They're good records. You know, there's there's a level of earnesty to those records. There's there's a there's a realness. There's a subversive nature. There, there's a self-determinate nature. I think in some of the best stuff, the best stuff I've worked on, that is really been, you know, the key to my longevity, you know, the key to my longevity doing this. Um, it's really about like, you know, th- you know, records and records that make it, di- you know, records and artists that make a difference. And I'm lucky enough to be, be able to bring that into the present and, you know, be able to say, well, damn, you know, I had a, after probably having, you know, eight or nine um, bands nominated for metal Grammys, Body Count, who I'm, who I've now worked with for three records, uh, won a Grammy in 2021 for a record called Carnivore. And you really don't get much more real than Body Count and Ice T, you know? Yeah. And also, also seeing, you know, seeing a band like Lorna Shore go from being, you know, a little bit, a little bit of an outlier in, in, in the deathcore world, become a major contender in the world of, of extreme music and metal is enormously gratifying. Be it bands like Frozen Soul or Sanguasugabog or Spirit World or Spirit Adrift, like any number of the handful of bands I've worked with really begin to establish themselves as real artists and, you know, real, real contenders. So this kind of ties into one of the questions I had for you. You know, you and I talk a lot when we're hanging out about the evolutions of scenes and things like, okay, like if you really had your finger on the pulse, you could have figured out about deathcore becoming a thing again in terms of a major, you know, key metal genre three, three, four years ago. You know, we talk about 
you see these sort of larger forces at play making scenes happen. How did you start learning that? How did you start figuring out like, oh, okay, here's how to track the trends? Because I feel like you have like some really insane listening because you seem to know everything I talk to you about record-wise, be it a classic record or a new record in a way that I've always found really impressive. How do you sort of follow what's going on in the scene and then try to understand what might happen next? I don't know. I'm just, I'm just a man. <laughs> okay. <laughs> With a very large record collection. I mean, obviously. Yeah. I mean, there's no science. There's no, you know, predictability. Everything changes. Everything is a wild guess. You don't look at things going like, this is going to change the culture. You know, you, 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 you look for artists, I think, that are meaningful. You look for artists where the most important thing is the music is great. The songs are great for whatever, yeah. you know, whatever genre, subgenre or milieu, you know, you're talking about. And fr from there, you, you know, I'll, let's, let's take the example of Lorna Shore. Sure. Here's a band that I saw at South by Southwest, probably 2012, 2013, maybe at that point to now only the guitar player and the drummer are still actually in the band, but they're also, you know, they're also the crux of the band. There was a germ of something that made them special, that made them a little bit left of center, that gave them their own personality that was a little bit heavier, you know, that pulled me in and made me go, watch this, because this is this is kind of special. And I remember, you know, I, I saw them a couple times over the years. And then when they became a free agent for a record called Immortal, having just recorded Immortal uh, for a label that was, you know, ceasing operations, I was contacted by their attorney and he was like, have you heard of them? I go, sure. I really like that band. Let me, let me hear, you know, I've liked their past records. Let me hear this one. And everything that I had seen about them going back over time, be it being a little bit weirder, a little bit heavier, a little bit more melodic, having, having their own personality really you know, started to really come out on this re on this record that was with a completely different vocalist than the vocalist now. You know, I, I, signed, I ended up signing the band. We released that record. Uh, it went on to, you know, have a decent degree of success. And there were some, you know, there were some lineup changes. A, a new vocalist came into the band. And actually, you know, a new second guitarist slash basically somebody who, who, who was able to write really great orchestration uh, came into the band and they, they found it, they found a chemistry that was pretty unbeatable. Yeah. And that, that provided the springboard to the hellfire uh, for, the, for the track to the hellfire song, which came off the, um, and I returned to nothingness EP. And that, you know, that really ex ex detonated that band's career in like a pretty, in a, in a pretty massive and meaningful way. So, you know, it's, it's, it's less about, it's it's it, and it's less about sort of trying to predict the future, but trying to identify what's unique and special. Great music, great personalities, the star factor, be it like someone like Will Ramos, someone like Aaron Hurd from Jesus Peace. Obviously, in a macro macro sense, some you know obviously Ice you know Ice T coming in in into you know my life with Body Count, like you know identifying those kind of personalities, identifying maybe a band that, that filled a void in the marketplace or you know a band that had its own had completely had its own vision and you know vision and, and, and sort of zeitgeist for itself and like i said in a macro sense that could be something like slipknot a recent example that comes to mind for me was you know when i first 
encountered Frozen Soul, you know, the vision for it was complete and it was cool and it was fun. And not only here was a band that was was writing great classic death metal songs, but they also they also had had an aesthetic for themselves and a vision for themselves, which which extend you know which extended beyond the music. Absolutely right. So and that's what's interesting is the way is just tracking all those things and then turning it into something. Here's a question I had more about sort of the the mythos of Mike Gitter. You have this reputation for going to multiple shows a night. Everyone I talk to in LA about you will, you know, will be like, that guy goes to more shows than I understand how it's physically possible, especially in a place where it's not New York City, where I can go from Gramercy to Vitus in 30 minutes on the train for three bucks. You're like driving from Long Beach to LA to Orange County. I don't know how the geography out there works. But, you know, you're like doing it on a different level than anything I've seen or personally experienced. How? It's not that hard. It's funny that you bring up, you know, New Yorker, because back when I started, you know, you used to be able to go to like the Continental and CBGBs and the Cat Club and Brownies were all within, were all within probably a a 15 minutes circumference of each other. So I, I probably got into this habit of, of sometimes multiple shows a night by things just being near to each other. But what a cool job, like going out and seeing every band you like. Well, every yeah, every band I like. And also also being being in front of a band, you know, and it's only about three or four nights a week, by the way. It's it's not this like exhaustive, you know, I have to go find something you know, seven nights a week. I just also sure. happen to live in live in Los Angeles, which is which is a major a major city where everybody comes through. We have many different and diverse local scenes. So the first time, you know, I saw the Ramones or the first time I saw Ozzy Osbourne or SSD Control or Minor Threat or Void or Siege or Metallica, you know, playing clubs, that's where the rubber met the road. You know what I mean? If there ever was a, a moment for a band of pure inspiration, of, of, of pure like, you know, here here is the essence of it. Here's the purity of it. Here's the honesty of it. It's on the live stage. And you cannot replicate. That's an experience which, you know, from, from, from the time I started seeing live music to now, you can't replicate that. That, that, is a, that is a singular, naked, and honest experience. Sure. That to me is completely important and completely like, you know, completely determinate whether, you know, how I react to a band or to an to an artist. Gotcha. So, so you know, I mean, sure, there are some there are some tired mornings, you know. There there are some there are some nights where you know you get home a little bit late, but damn, this is worth it. Yeah, I get paid for this. It's wild. So, as kind of a final note, we've talked about sort of the rise of deathcore. You know, you're obviously very tuned into sort of the new wave of old school death metal. Mm-hmm. You know, the Nwastum, all about clunky acronyms. But where do you see the metal scene evolving now? You know, like, I, I personally see sort of how TikTok has turned the hardcore scene bigger than it's been in a long time. You know, because kids are seeing the crazy shows on TikTok and then going and wanting to do that, you know? If you see the magic of a band like Drain on the internet, of course, a angry 15-year-old wants to try that. 
you know, so my question is, where do you see, you know, current market trends evolving the scene? Can you even answer that question legally? I don't know if I can legally or illegally answer it, but I mean, I think, I think obviously, you know, a number, a number of factors have changed the landscape. I think first and foremost, what drives or what, what evolves scenes, part of it's technology and the fact that, that we, you know, we're, we're now first encountering music not at the local record store or on the radio, but on social media. And we're getting, we're getting a lot of it. You know, what I've noticed happening is particularly after I think the pandemic where particularly young people had a chance to really watch, to really listen, to really absorb music is there is a cultural cutoff point. There's a line of demarcation where a new generation, where, where a new generation, I don't think this happens for everyone, but I think I think that there's a mass generation that wants their bands. They want things to, that matter to them. Doesn't matter how it stacks. It doesn't matter. You know, people always say people always say, well, you got to see some great, you know, great bands, and you got to see you got to have great experiences, see great shows. And my feeling is like, yes, but that that always that always happens. Yeah. It always happens because because different generations demand, you know, different generations and different people want their experience. And you know, one thing, one there was one event last year that really brought it home for me, which was going, to, which was the Sound and Fury Festival here in Los Angeles, which is you know probably the biggest biggest American hardcore festival running, and six thousand people, mostly young people, ethnically diverse people, male and female, showed up to see a slate of relatively new bands showed up to see a festival that was headlined by Drain on one night and Gulch playing their final show on the next night. So because of all of these factors, there's a sea change. And that's good and that's positive. The question on my mind is, who are these next headliners? Who are these next you know, mainstay bands? We saw it happen with, I think we've seen it happen with Turnstile, who are, you know, who've, who've evolved you know into you know in, in, in into a, a major band and and a, a flag waiver you know for for hardcore and beyond for, for hardcore and beyond and we've seen it you know we've certainly seen it happen with ghosts who are now in arenas bring me the horizon who have gone through multiple multiple stylistic shifts but we're also starting to see it you know with bands like trivium you know or kill switch engage who have notched up over the years and now have had these careers that have touched many generations. There's no real answer in where is it going? Because I'd be, you know, because because something will always something will always change. And, and so, there'll always be some new new cultural curve, curveball that that gets tossed at you that um changes everything. But I will say the good news is that you know, metal and hardcore may never die, but you will. Paraphrase Mogwai. Excellent. Do you have any final words of wisdom before we wrap this up? Uh, well, thanks, Matt. I love you. I love you, Mike Gitter. I hate your cigar. Put that cigar away. Put that dirty thing away. Bro, wait, wait till you see me break out the pipe. I might have that over. It's over here. I've got like multiple pipes now. Oh, Sherlock, please. Do are, are, you have one of those sort of like big, what are those like German, you know, Germanic like pipes? One sec. Let me break it out. One sec. Well, first of all, thank you everyone for listening. This has been Mike Gitter, the one and only. Thank you. We'll catch you next week. All right, so that was awesome. 
Thank you, everyone out there, for listening to Delirious Nomads, sponsored by Blacklight Media. We will be coming back at you next week with another awesome guest. Be sure to follow Blacklight Media on socials for new music and more. And above all, keep it heavy. This is Krista Makes, guitarist and vocalist for Less Than Jake, and host of Krista Makes a Podcast, a songwriting podcast where every week I'm joined by an amazing guest to break down the writing, recording, and release of one iconic song from their career. In our giant, evergreen back catalog of episodes, we've had rock legends such as Dee Snyder and Huey Lewis, punk rock favorites like Mark Hoppus, Fat Mike, and Brett Gurowitz, and up-and-coming artists of today, such as Liz Stokes of the Beths and Genesis Owusu. We've had guests from all genres and styles of music, and I guarantee that if you peruse our back catalog, you'll see several episodes that'll make you say, man, I gotta hear that. Whether you're a fan of music or a creator of music yourself, you'll take away a whole new appreciation for the songs you know and love. Chris Makes a Podcast is available for free on all the places you could possibly listen to podcasts. And new episodes come out every Monday. It is now 2024. And the choice is up to you. Do you listen to good podcasts? Or do you listen to bad ones? Well, we've got a suggestion for you. How about you listen to a good podcast? for the first time in your miserable life. I can think of one. Overnight Drive. Going strong. 11 years now. The podcast about nothing. Your favorite podcast's favorite podcast. Do you enjoy nothing? <laughs> so do we. Why don't you come over and check it out and stop listening to other podcasts. Thank you.